Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Chainergy Coffee Company podcast. So this afternoon uh, I would like to talk about a topic that is uh, misunderstood and probably interesting only to people who are in the finance world. But it's, uh, I think, a news to which even the regular uh, folks should start to pay attention because uh, in this specific case we talk about derivatives. And more specifically, I'm not going to do a general podcast on derivatives because that would take too much time, would be too generic and just generally boring. But there was one piece of news. <clears throat> I read it on the Financial Times, but it was always also in, in, other, in other newspapers. That has really hit my attention. So, the CME, so this is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, will start a new kind of derivatives based on water. Water. This is a first. So why this is uh, an interesting and even the, and even, even exciting uh, development? Because, uh, well, first because it's the first time that someone starts to do a derivative on something like water. So it's it's a first. And second because it's both. Uh, a good and potentially a bad news at the same time, depending on where you look or which very often political side of the spectrum you sit on. Me as a professional, as a risk management professional, finance professional, well, actually unemployed at the moment, but as an energy and commodity professional, I tend to see this as a positive development. Why? Because <clears throat> giving... Uh, I mean, developing a, a product like a derivative on the cost of, of water essentially allows the people that use the water to have some certainty on what the price of water is going to be and essentially even to manage efficiently, which does not mean fairly. An efficient solution is not necessarily fair, and that's where my left-leaning paths usually jump. But it means an efficient solution to address uh, a real world problem, which is uh, water scarcity. Now, we need to put this a little bit into perspective. This derivative on water doesn't cover the entire world. It's a derivative on water, it's a future, to be precise, that covers only the Welles index of water in California. And this does not cover uh, water for drinking use, but water for agricultural, industrial and municipal use. So B2B water, if you want. Now, unless you haven't paid the attention, there has been a chronic drought in California. There has been a huge issue with the, with the wildfires. <clears throat> and the forecast for water availability in California, which is a state uh, that is famous for the, its ID industry, the Silicon Valley, but it's a state that is still essentially an agricultural state. There are, the prognosis for water availability is, is quite dire. It's, it's bad. So from this standpoint, any instrument that might give some transparency and some ability to the farmers and to the operator to hedge their risk against the wild price fluctuation is good news. Of course, this doesn't mean that a derivative is the solution to, to drought. It's not. But 
information is always king. Knowing which the price is going to be and knowing which is the trend in the prices will give uh, people that are affected by this specific uh, topic will give them an additional tool to manage the risk. And at least in economic terms, it means that it will price out the most efficient, inefficient of the water users. Because if the price goes up, essentially it's like a way to price out some of the operators. Which obviously means also that might be not fair. Because obviously who are the people that are less likely to be able to benefit from hedging their bets? Small farmers. That's a fact. And that's what I was saying, that probably this instrument is efficient, but not fair. However, before we get into the political consideration, which is not my main, my main interest, I mean, of course it's an interest because this uh, development might in the future touch also other areas of the world. Even though in terms of regulation, uh, uh, I don't see Europe as taking the same, uh, the same approach. However, we need to take, bear into mind that in Europe we take the wide availability of fresh water on the continent for granted. Europe never had any real drought, at least not that I remember. There are years in which the water level, the water level in the waterways can be lower, like for example the Rhine a few years was almost impossible to navigate and so most of the goods, for example, transported from Rotterdam to to Central Europe had to be tracked or transported by railcar. And in fact, at a certain stage, I heard also some talks about introducing some derivatives on freight on the Rhine, but I think it never came to fruition. However, in Europe, the regulation and also the, the, the sensibility towards environmental matters are more towards more state intervention and more regulation rather than market solutions. This because right now, in this historical period, we still don't have a problem in terms of water usage. At least not in most of Europe. We had that essentially, for example, in Sicily, and there is a whole lot of problems. I mean, I know that all my Italian friends, if I would say, ah, we should price the, the, the use of water, would start to jump, no privatization, we are against this, and uh, this is capitalism. Well, but capitalism is an efficient allocator of resources. Again, efficient doesn't mean fair. Efficient means efficient. Uh, and anyway, the state is actually the worst allocator of resources, most of the times. I have plenty of examples in which governments are very lousy allocators of capital, allocators of resources, or manager of industrial policies. There's also the opposite, because capitalism has its own failures, so I tend to sit in the middle. I mean, usually you solve a complex problem with complex solution that entails a bit of state intervention and a bit of, uh, of private, uh, private initiative, private innovation, because innovation and the government usually, whatever some economists say, don't go very well hand in hand. Anyway, coming back to our, to our derivatives, what kind of contract is this? Is a future, so it's a contract that is negotiated against the, the exchange. Now, this is a very important point. Why it's important that this against the exchange is not a novelty, an over-the-counter. 
Broadly speaking, there are two kind, two major kind of derivatives. The over the counters, so derivatives that are negotiated between one or more counterparties, but they are let's say private, so there is very little disclosure going on. And the most important side is the counterparty risk stays with every counterparty, meaning if I enter a swap which is typically an OTC, let's say an interest rate swap, or for me it's, it's easier to explain, like let's say uh, oil swap, where uh, for example I buy Brent monthly average October and sell monthly average September. Why would I do this? Is because I'm probably loading in September and offloading in October, so I need to cover my my price risk and <coughs> I enter a swap. In that case, I will do it with a counterparty that has the opposite need, maybe through a broker, is going to, there is going to be an intermediary that is going to put us together. And let's say Gennaro Coffee company, the Chainergy Coffee company, will enter in a, a swap with Exxon and we will carry the risk, so Exxon will assume the risk of entering in the transaction with the Chainergy Coffee company and the Chainergy Coffee company will assume a lot less risk by entering, by entering in a transaction with Exxon. So this is the OTC. If I do the same with the future, okay, I cannot do exactly the same with the future because future clear derivatives are not the same, are mostly other kind of derivatives as option and futures. In that case, I don't see my counterparty. So let's say that I want to go long to buy a future for Brent of the month of October. I go to the London Stock Exchange and I buy a future, which is going to be, no, I don't remember, it's probably 40,000 euro, give or take at the at current prices, but anyway. And another counterparty will sell, so will be the counterparty to my, to my purchase. However, the, the exchange sits in the middle. I don't see which is my counterparty and the exchange <coughs> essentially guarantees the liquidity of the contract and guarantees the counterparty risk, meaning that if the counterparty goes bust, it's the exchange that is going to take over, I, I'm not even going to know if the counterparty went bust. So essentially the exchange guarantees, first, more transparency, because it guarantees the access to information to every market participant, and probably also to people who are not market participants. For example, we can read the price of oil, the <coughs> the listing of the of the oil derivatives of oil futures every day it's widely available it's published so and that allows to all of us essentially to have uh, a certain expectations on the market so first it's for sure a good thing that the the derivative is on is on an exchange especially on something as delicate as water the thing that might be a bit uh, more controversial is uh, how this thing is going to be regulated. So, uh, the, reading the Chicago Mercantile Exchange uh, press release, of course, they are celebrating this contract as a new solution uh, in fighting climate change, as a new solution in, uh, in addressing climate risk. Uh, 
uh, green investing and whatever buzzword you, want, you might want to put there. And they, they have a point, honestly. It's not like they're wildly off mark by saying that they're essentially developing new tools for fighting climate change-related risks drought in this specific case. However, as uh, operating in the oil market has uh, taught me, there is always a risk. Uh, a certain kind of contract can attract a lot of speculators. And especially in, in the economic times in which we are, which are funny economic times, where, you know, interest rates are essentially zero to negative, which doesn't mean that credit is available, so we're having uh, an economic recovery, it just means that there is a lot of cash chasing returns. Which means that almost every asset class looks like it's getting inflated. I mean, uh, the, the stock market, as I'm speaking, has lost a little bit of ground, but it's difficult to put your head around the fact that, for example, the Dow Jones and the New York Stock Exchange is hitting as it, it's uh, all-time high during the COVID crisis. I mean, it seems like shares are completely decoupled from economic expectation because economic expectation with the COVID, with the pandemic and the fallout from the pandemic are not that great. I mean, as uh, someone who has a grasp of economics myself, at least I think so, I don't expect a huge economic recovery anytime soon yet the stock exchange keeps on getting higher and higher. Why? It's inflation. My personal explanation, and it's an opinion rather than a fact-based conclusion, because I haven't done the studies that would need to be done, is that all this liquidity is pushing certain asset class up. When, when so much liquidity enters into a market, it can happen as well that it pushes the up the prices also in corner of the market that you wouldn't expect. I'm thinking about, for example, the big increase in the oil price in 2007, where at a certain stage it reached $140, I believe. I think it maybe even past $150. And then in a matter of months, it crashed to less than $30. It was a great time to be to be in the old business back then, I'm talking about 2000, yeah, 2008, 2009, because if you had the cash, it was a time to make a lot of great bargains. For example, there is some form of correlation between the shared crash and the 2008 banking crash and, uh, <clears throat> and the crash in the price of oil. Why? Because all of a sudden, all this liquidity that was in the market, where everyone was chasing returns that other assets would not give, gets drained because all the funds need to start to <clears throat> pay for redemption, because uh, risk management in banks gets super queasy and super uh, nervous, and so they say, okay, let's go cash. And all of a sudden, <coughs> the, all this cash that was not oil-related, so it was not market participant in, in the physical oil business, gets drained out of the market, the price crashes. And that has been a problem, because now, <clears throat> imagine someone who was uh, buying oil when the price was 140 and was selling when it had crashed at 60. I mean, a lot of people got a lot of pain. A lot of people even went out of business. I believe that under the decision, uh, for example, of JP Morgan uh, 
to get rid of its uh, physical trading arm. Yes, there was <coughs> the regulation of the Dodd-Frank Act, but there was also the fact that they had taken a buff on quite a few trades. So, uh, speculation as always, it can be always a bledged sword. However, contrary to popular beliefs, uh, speculators are necessary. So these people that make bets on this market are necessary because they allow the market to have liquidity and they allow even the, sometimes the most uh, unlikely insurances to be purchased. Like <clears throat> now, uh, finding an example, but imagine if you need to <clears throat> ensure the margin of your refinery. How do you do it? You know, you have uh, a moving target in entrance, the price of crude, moving target gets outside, gasoline, uh, fuel oil, gas oil, all refined products. And you have a time lag between the moment that the crude enters the refinery and the moment that the products exit the refinery. So the availability of people that are willing <coughs> to bet with you on certain prices allows you to buy the insurance that keeps the market going. So the speculators are not these uh, bad guys because you know behind the term speculators it's a lot of in terms there is always a certain negative connotation. But the reality is that speculators provide the grease that make the, <coughs> the market rolling. I mean, even if we look, for example, what happened a few months ago in the WTI, that every newspaper in the world went, oh my god, the price of oil is negative, how is it possible that the price of oil is negative? Well, first the price of oil was not negative. The price of the future with debt delivery was negative, which is a very different thing. The price of oil is talking about the price of oil is like talking about nothing. I mean, the price of that specific benchmark in that specific month went negative, which meant that someone had to pay to keep to take the oil off their back. Now, in a world that has grown up where the price of oil was always something big and something, something, oh my god, the price of oil is going up, this seems like a nonsense. However, that meant, meant industrially that someone had too much oil and no place to store it. And since you cannot just dump the oil in the sea, it meant that he had to pay to get someone to take the oil off his back. Now, in that specific case, there is always with the case and the CTFC, which is the regulator that looks at futures in North America, in the US, but US is essentially not the North American market, is looking at the possibility that some traders were trying to corner in the market. But unless they can prove that that to be the case, and it's not an easy feature to prove that, the reality is that someone had essentially entered in a negative position because they had the need to get out of a sticky situation. Alas, getting rid of a contract that otherwise would have forced them to store oil at a time when probably the cost of storing the oil was higher than the cost of paying someone to get it. So, on one side you had probably an oil operator, on the other side you had a speculator. For sure, there were also a lot of retail investors that got completely burned. However, I mean, call me cynic, but I have very little um, sympathy for a retail investor that invests in commodity futures, because commodity futures is not an investment, 
for retail investors. And if you're a retail investor, you are the small fish. And in the investment community, the small fish gets eaten almost always. And especially when you go into commodities, because in shares you can essentially be a small fish that gets in bigger pools of fish and you become essentially like a big fish, like you can have an ETF, you can have an active managed fund, fund so you don't necessarily do stock picking on your own. And still with stock, pick, stock picking, <coughs> I believe that a, a sane retail investor shouldn't, shouldn't put too much of his assets in stock picking because it's like betting on horses because yes, you might be right in your fundamental analysis, but the market can be wrong a lot longer than you have the ability to be right, to wait for being right. So it's always a timing issue. So my advice, and I wrote a few blog articles on that, is do not invest in commodities. Do not invest in commodities, do not invest in derivatives, if that's not your job. So now, coming to the <coughs> water derivative. The water derivative might attract speculators that might push the cost of edging the water way above what people are willing to pay, and hence create a situation in which farmers are priced out of getting the water. Now, this is possible, and it's a real risk, and that would be, at the end of the day, up to the regulators to devise a system to limit the potential impact of, uh, of speculators. And there are ways, because in certain markets there are already limits, trading limits, position limits. Uh, sometimes... Uh, for example, physical delivery gets barren in a way that it provokes a crash in prices. Not a crash, but a decrease. So, at the end of the day, as usual, it's not the idea, is how it's implemented. And I think we should really watch this, this development because it might give a blueprint for other ways of managing climate-related risks. Right now, there are a few markets for climate-related risks. I'm thinking about the certificate market, emission trading markets. And emission trading markets, especially in Europe, would need a lot of fixing, because in theory it's unified markets, but then there are national borders under which green or other certificate for emission can be traded. However, it is very difficult to foresee a world where we try to keep our level of well-being and of wealth and we do it only through forced regulation and forced taxation administered through a government. First, because governments are too small. This is a global issue. And second, because governments are politicized. So government might decide to tax an industry more than another because reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with the economic benefits of, uh, of this fact. So <clears throat> developing a market for uh, assets that are affected by climate change risk is a good thing. And watching this, uh, this, <clears throat> this development and watching this product is actually <clears throat> a very good uh, experiment which even the European Union could uh, try to think about how to implement. 
Maybe it's not about water, maybe it's about, again, the access to the waterways. Maybe it can be done for, I don't know, <clears throat> access to airplane routes. Instead of keeping the system of the slots, trying to price <clears throat> this route in a way that it would essentially achieve a reduction in emission through a proper pricing of the externalities. It could, <clears throat> it could give a blueprint for, for electricity also. I mean, electricity is essentially a fairly transparent and liquid market for industrial operators. It's much less so for, for, for households, I mean, for small <clears throat> operators. I mean, the tendency is always to choose uh, the most convenient options in terms of also easiness to understand. So you are unlikely to have uh, a constant change in prices depending on the on the time of the day. However, there are, for example, very common to have a solution where, for example, the use at night, where <coughs> notoriously the use is lower, cost less than the, than the use during the day. Now, uh, the final aim of a market solution is essentially that, making sure that a correct price <coughs> is attached to an asset, <coughs> to, a, to a source, to a, to a mean of production, so that the use is the most efficient. Efficient in economic terms means that it <coughs> is correctly priced and gives the best return. Doesn't mean that it's the fairest, again. So if we would need to achieve uh, an objective in terms of fairness, this is obviously conflicting with the market functioning. Because the market <coughs> should be regulated by supply and demand, and hence, at a certain stage, if the demand exceeds the supply, the price goes up and vice versa. So, probably, again, when we look at the possible regulation, there could be a way to let the lower end of the participants being available to participate in the market by giving grants or by giving uh, credit. But still, <clears throat> just the simple fact of being able to price a scarce resource is a benefit by itself, because if a resource doesn't have a price, it attracts free riding. So no one cares about the resource anymore because there is no price attached to it. Yes, it's, it's true. In small communities, it's normal to pull together resources, and that's usually a very efficient way to manage resources because everyone has a stake, etc. But we're not talking about small communities anymore. Communities are getting bigger, markets are getting more and more global. Even though with the COVID, this tendency will probably slow down and will probably be even put into reverse in certain corners of the markets. But most markets today, especially the market for resources, are global or anyway regional markets. So having a clear and transparent view on the pricing would, would essentially disintermediate. So would be would allow the market participants to know directly their information, would essentially cut some of the middlemen, achieving higher efficiency achieving better, a better outcome and a better allocation of resources for, any, for, for everyone.
Now, <clears throat> just to conclude a little bit this uh, small episode on this, on this specific topic, is this uh, derivative uh, the end of solution? No. It's going to be very critical how this derivative, is, this kind of derivative, and the future kind of derivatives <clears throat> are going to be implemented. However, I do see this as the way forward, but from an investment standpoint, obviously for qualified investors, not for hidden investors, to invest in uh, instruments that can help alleviate the nefarious effect of climate change. It is an opportunity to create new product. It is an headache for its managers because, of course, they will have to understand a little bit how this new product works. However, this is most likely going to be the way forward to ensure that market solution can help in a better allocation of resources, and by better I mean in an allocation that is more efficient and that, hence, uses more wisely the limited resources of the planet. This is a critical aim that we should all persecute to make sure that our children will be able to live in a planet in the same way that we and the previous generation have done. And I believe that the market is a substantial part of the solution to this problem. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to know more about this product, you can find the press release on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or on the Financial Times there is a free article that is titled US Regulator Welcomes Water Future as a Tool to Manage Climate Risk which was published on the Financial Times of the 22nd of September 2020. Thank you very much for tuning in again and wish you all a great evening.